Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here are your hosts, editor Christian Berg and associate editor Mark Demko. All right, welcome back to the Bow Hunting Podcast. We are all bow hunting, all the time. And there's one thing that bow hunters can never get enough of, Mr. Demko. It's the white-tailed deer, right? Absolutely. If you're, you know, if you're into bow hunting, you can eat, sleep, and drink it 365 days a year. Even in the off-season, there's plenty of things to plan for and to talk about. Absolutely. And so this week, Mr. Demko has a great episode where he's interviewing a couple of experts about the latest and greatest information when it comes to deer movement and behavior. I know that I am really interested to hear it, and I hope you are too. And I'm going to give Mark an opportunity to cue that up. But before I do that, I want to remind each and every one of you that the Bow Hunting Podcast is presented by Lancaster Archery Supply. For all your bow hunting needs, you know where you go, Mark? LancasterArchery.com. We've got the gear, we've got the knowledge, we've got the passion. And certainly, white tailed deer hunters have a lot of passion and are always hungry not just for the latest year from Lancaster Archery, but the latest information about how deer think and what makes them tick and how they can use that know-how to be more successful hunters. Right, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Christian. You know, you know, we all have days where we go in the woods and you, you don't think there's a deer within 10 miles of your stand. Uh, and then you have days, uh, mostly during the rut, but other times of the year where the deer just to seem come out of woodwork. And, you know, so, it, you know, Sometimes it gets you to thinking, what's driving this deer movement? What's what's prompting these changes? And so oh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to get together with uh, Kip Adams of the National Deer Association. I know you, Kip, well. And then yeah, Steve fellow, Damaris, fellow, who is- Fellow Pennsylvania guy. Yep. Kip and I is, go way back. He yep. is a super guy, wealth of knowledge. Same thing with Steve Damaris, who also joined us. He's with the Mississippi State Deer Ecology and Management Lab. Now, if you haven't heard of that, that's probably one of the uh, most well-known whitetail research centers in uh, the United States. Uh, they've been doing studies on deer for years and years. And, you know, we started out the conversation in asking, and I don't want to ruin this for you, but, but is there a magic bullet? Is there something that drives deer movement over anything else? And, you know, we went through a, a pretty lengthy conversation about the different environmental factors and weather conditions and things that might affect deer movement. But we also touched on, as we got toward the end, maybe some misconceptions hunters have about, um, you know, what prompt deer to move, change their patterns and things like that. It was a fascinating discussion. And, and I was just enthralled listening to those two gentlemen. Well, there's certainly a couple of luminaries there in the deer world. And, you know, as you mentioned, Mississippi State, there were two random thoughts, I, or I guess two thoughts, one random and one not so random. And the not so random one is I believe that Mississippi State is also the alma mater of our whitetails columnist, Jason Snavely. And so pretty sure uh, Steve Damaris was one of Jason's professors in, in college. And that was the non-random thought. And I guess the random thought, and I could be wrong on this because I'm not a big Cowboys fan, but isn't Mississippi State the alma mater of the great underachieving quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, Dak Prescott? 
Dax Prescott is an incredible quarterback. They just need to flush that team out a little more. Oh, I think he said, I think, I think no franchise gets less juice out of the orange than the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, they've had an awful lot of talent on that roster and we could probably do a whole show on that, but am I right on Mississippi state? I seem to recall like a sports illustrated cover years back with him and a Mrs. Tell me I'm right. Or else I look like a fool here, Mr. Demka. I'm going to agree with you. I actually don't know unless you look it up. Uh, I am not up to speed on all of the, uh, schools in the SEC and things like that. I guess what? I just Googled it. Mississippi State. So my brain has has not completely turned to mush. So folks, if you like Dak Prescott, the Dallas Cowboys, bow hunting white-tailed deer, or scientific uh, and biological wildlife research, has Mark got an interview for you today? Super excited. We're going to jump into a really, what to me is a fascinating topic, and those are the factors that influence deer movement. And uh, I have two uh, amazing guests, Kip Adams, who is the chief conservation officer of the National Deer Hunting, excuse me, the National Deer Association. Kip, you and I have talked off and on for years. You started as a biologist, and uh, now you're leading the organization. fellow Pennsylvania resident, and Steve Damaris, who is the Taylor Chair in Applied Big Game Research and Education at Mississippi State uh, University. Uh, Now, I will say that uh, Mississippi State has one of the most renowned uh, deer research facilities in the the country. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedules to join us. Glad to be here, Mark. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Mark. Excellent. You know, and and so we'll just jump right into this topic because there's a lot of different ways we could go. But, you know, when when hunters think about deer movement, I've heard uh, guys tell me that they pay strong attention to moon positioning, moon phases, changes in air pressure, the barometer uh, and so much more. But uh, um, you guys have been involved in a lot of studies. So I want to hear it from you. What are the primary or the real factors that influence how and when deer move? Mark, we, we have looked, and I say we, me and, and my colleague Bronson Strickland, who's a co-director of the MSU Deer Lab, we have for about 20 years now tried to quantify the factors that impact what we like to call magic day. And any hunter has seen it. I mean, th- there's the average day that we go out in the woods or they're driving down the road, and then there's these occasional days and times on a given day where the deer are just everywhere and there's this magic day and there has to be a reason all the you know when i drive two hours across mississippi and all of a sudden there are deer along that two hour drive there's something going on there and we've looked at a lot of of our movement data we've looked at weather patterns and and We've got some very general, general patterns of weather systems uh, affecting cooler, drier frontal fronts tend to facilitate a little bit more movement. But um, really, it comes down to the general pattern of crepuscular behavior in white-tailed deer. It's in their genes. They're going to move late afternoon and, and early morning. And really, they're moving a lot during the night, too. And, and But we don't see that because we're not out hunting. But as far as hunters, you know, you just got to count on those general patterns of late afternoon and, and early morning. But never uh, forget and, and give up and leave the woods too early. Uh, and, and 
you know, I, I'm a, I used to deer hunt in Vermont and Maine when I was growing up in Massachusetts. I mean, we'd go in the woods before daylight and we'd have our lunch and we wouldn't leave the woods till after, after sunset. And that's the only way you're really going to pick up all the movement potential. Now, Bronson likes to say there is no factor that's related to magic day. I believe, I still believe it, that there is. I just haven't found it yet. Maybe Kip can tell us how, what his key to magic day is. I like that reference to even now, because anybody who has hunted very much certainly understands exactly what you're talking about. There are some days that are just so special relative to the numbers of deer you see. Um, Mark, I think it's one. It's important for for listeners to understand. You know, this is not just Dr. Damaris's thoughts or personal views. We they know this through you know current research. You know, with the advent of the GPS radio collar, it allowed us to learn so much more. You know, in the old days when we had just regular radio collars that didn't give us GPS locations, we could find deer or turkeys or bear or anything. You know, on on certain days, but. Now that we have a GPS unit on there, it gives us so much more information about, you know, multiple locations a day for these animals. Um, but it also has things like, you know, thermometers on there. We can know exactly what the temperature is when they move. We can monitor up, down, and side-to-side -side head movement. So if an animal's not moving, it's in a location for a while, we can determine whether it's bedding there or resting there or if it's feeding there based on other movements of the head. So it's crazy the amount of information that researchers can get today with these collars. So when Steve talks about, hey, this is what we know, this, this is how we know it. This is not speculation. And they have done tremendous research in Mississippi. You know, people have conducted similar research in Texas, Pennsylvania, the Midwest. So this isn't just a South thing or just a Mississippi thing. Researchers all over the Whitetails range are conducting similar experiments and finding similar results where, you know, time, timing of the year more than anything else will dictate deer movement, you know, during the breeding season, the non-breeding season. But Steve's right, that crepuscular activity, that time of day, we know deer will move then. There's no magic thing or magic mix of elements, wind, barometer, temperature, rain, snow, whatever. As hunters, we want to believe there's a magic mix of those. Um, but uh, through all of these and literally millions and millions of data points of GPS collars, um, researchers haven't found that perfect mix that makes deer get on their feet. Anything, certainly not nearly as much as just that time of day or that crepuscular activity that Steve mentioned. And Mark, yeah, one of the interesting things that, you know, Kip and I have both done dozens and dozens of, of workshops and, and teaching hunters about what we've learned through research mm -hmm. and management experience. And, and it's one of the co uh, common misperceptions of, uh, of hunters generally is that, you know, they, they go out and they hunt three or four or five or six days in a year you know, depending upon the length of the season, maybe 10 or 12 days. And, and they see a few things and they want to generalize patterns, differences in patterns based on the few deer observations that they have. And, and commonly in workshops, I'll do a, a talk on who controls the breeding and, and the timing of breeding. And they'll say, well, yeah, I've seen this year uh, breeding was started two weeks earlier. And I, based on a few limited observations and like kip was saying we have dozens and dozens of hundreds of collared deer millions of observations of movements 
and we haven't been able to come up with a general pattern. So the hunters need to realize, you know, their their perceptions are valid, but not necessarily set in stone based on relatively limited observations. And I think that's a, a fascinating point that you make that uh, I, you're going to have to custom tailor your experience for where you live and where you hunt. You can try to sort of focus in on those generalizations. And uh, I'll give you an example. When I when I, I, I have about a few acres at my house that I hunt. And when I first moved out here, I, I had some pretty good deer hunting spots. And the deer population is not as strong out here where I live now. I thought I forgot how to deer hunt. And now we're going back 12, 13 years. But uh, my best spot, spot that I found is on the corner of my woodlot. And the wind can only be coming from one direction, which is not a very typical wind direction where I'm at. And ever since I figured that out, I've been quite successful. But it's like you have to learn to put all those pieces of the puzzle together and uh, for where you hunt and things like that. And uh, um, I've just always been fascinated. When I, I know there are guys that are diehards paying attention to moonrise and moonset and when you can coincide that with your evening set or with your morning hunt and things like that. And so uh, it is a fascinating topic. But uh, when talking to the you two, the experts, and 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 you hear speaking about uh, after so many studies and combing through so much data that there is no golden ticket it's pretty fascinating and you know one thing i can guarantee you 100 percent probability if you're not in the woods you are not going to see deer and if you're in the woods your chance of seeing deer greatly increase <laughs> that's right now, you know mark one thing steve said that i think is is important for hunters to to recognize is and I'm the same way, you know, I believe in science and I like to study science. And the science is very clear that relative to, you know, moon position, moon phase, you know, impacts deer movement very little. Uh, wind, rain, precipitation, you know, all of those things impact it very little. That is really clear. The data clearly shows that. However, like Steve, as a hunter, there has just been certain days that are magical. So I also believe that there is some mix of all of these environmental factors that when things line up do make a difference. And I would I would not say that there is nothing. Um, like Steve, I'll agree that we haven't found what that is yet, but partly because I think it's a hard thing to find. So when hunters say, you know, the moon matters, you know what? Not all that much in a mix of like five or six or 10 other variables that might matter. So they may hear something from Mississippi State or Penn State that says that and they say, oh, that's not true. You know, he says the moon doesn't matter. I've seen it matter. Well, you know, Steve has a million observations showing, you know what? It doesn't. It, he's not saying that in a mix of other things that that isn't part of something. And I think that's key. I don't think that we have found the exact mix yet either. But I'm very, very confident that it's not just moon phase or moon overhead or moon underfoot or the barometer is rising or the barometer is dropping. It's science is very clear. It's not a single thing. So, uh, but what we do know with that, you know, we know very clearly when deer are going to breed in any state of the country and just about any county of the country. And we know what time of day they'll move most. So those are the best times to be there. But you know what? It doesn't mean that's the only time you should go. You know, your opportunities increase anytime you're there. And I tell people, you know, if you really like to hunt by a certain wind or a certain moon phase, keep doing it. Partly because <laughs> if you like that, the enthusiasm that you then take to the woods is going to help you. Even if the science doesn't support that theory, if you believe it hard enough that it makes you hunt better, it can help. It's kind of like fishing your favorite fishing lure. 
You fish that a little longer, you fish it a little harder, you catch more fish because of it. So a lot of it is your actions and your belief. And I firmly believe that's exactly the same with what some hunters believe on different environmental variables when they go deer hunt. So I'm not going to say don't believe in it. I'm just going to say, hey, don't you know discount the science. But if you believe that it helps you to makes you have a better time when you're hunting, by all means, that's what we want. We want to have fun in the woods. So continue you know, to hunt under those conditions. Just don't discard the science that's behind it because, you know, you may personally believe otherwise. Thank you so much for that. Now, one thing that's come up a lot already in our conversation is the wind. And I'm, I'm going to ask, a, I'm going to flip this around and say, when, when, you, when you've done these studies and you look at the wind, um, have you found any correlation in deer movement um, when uh, you have a horrible swirling wind versus having it from a um, the same direction or when you have really strong winds versus light winds, or does that still fall in the category of it just, just depends and it's not an overriding factor? I did a study in South Texas back when I was working out of Texas Tech with my, my friend Bob Zaglin, and uh, we looked at a lot of ob visual observations when when they saw a deer and and we related it also to uh, telemetry movements collected back in the old-fashioned days where we triangulated so it was old-fashioned data not the the really high highly accurate and huge data sets that we have now but uh, back then uh, winds above 15 miles an hour shut down deer movements and i think it can be related to uh hearing that a deer's hearing is critically important and high wind they got a lot of rustling noises and if they don't know that they're safe if they can't rely on their ears then they don't feel comfortable and and so wind too much wind is a problem and plus if you're up in a tree stand a climbing tree stand and the wind's blowing and you're doing this and you're trying to get a a, a good draw and a steady draw on a deer even if it does come by uh you're gonna have a hard time hitting it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That can be real site-specific too, Mark. Um, I see the exact same thing at our place in northern Pennsylvania that Steve's talking about. You know, wind speeds above 15, deer movement is absolutely depressed on our farm. And we keep observation records. Everybody that hunts our farm for the last 20-plus years, every day you go hunting, observation records. How many hours you hunted, was it in the morning or evening, and numbers of bucks, does, fawns, and, and other wildlife you saw. So, you know, we have a pretty big data set with that. I think some of that wind... Uh, he's talking about there too can be site specific because it's more of what deer are accustomed to where I am. The wind typically is less than that. So if the wind approaches 15 to 20 miles an hour, it's something that's out of the norm. Deer respond in many cases negatively by not moving as much. Now, conversely, I hunt uh, North Dakota most years and have for most of the last 10 years. The wind is never less than 20 miles an hour <laughs> because it's all wide open. So, yeah. 15 to 20 miles an hour there is nothing for those deer, but you go to 30 miles an hour and they're not moving. So that's, you know, so we're not just saying, oh, 15 is absolutely the break point. It is relative to that area, kind of what is the normal wind patterns and what is outside of that. And anytime I think that you get outside of what a normal uh, wind speed is, then I think you absolutely can negatively impact, you know, those deer moving for the exact reason and others that, that Steve was mentioning. And Kip, do you think, um, you know, the, the two main, well, three main uh, predator avoidance methods that deer have is sight, sound, and, and scent. And out in North Dakota, 
heavy winds, but you also have less vertical cover out there. And so are they more involved with sight and scent than they are with sound? And that's maybe why there's there's less sensitivity to 15 to 20 and, and it doesn't happen until it's over 30. Yep. I, I agree hundred percent, Steve out there, you know, at home, you know, we do have openings, you know, but there's a, mountains, there's trees, you know, average sight distance in many cases is a hundred yards or less where we are in North Dakota, average sight distance is closer to a thousand yards. So, you know, very few trees wide open. So yeah, I mean, and even if they can't hear as good, you know, they're seeing so much farther so landscape's entirely different. So, yep, I think what you said is exactly right. And, and I want to uh, mention NDA just put out a really good article about deer vision. Uh, I think it was on on their website and, and their Quality Whitetails magazine um, about all the capabilities of deer vision. And, and they're hugely capable in that. And uh, Mark, I hope that isn't a problem he mentioned in Quality Whitetails and Absolutely not. This is okay. this is great uh, information. You guys are a wealth of information. So, uh, yeah. So that that's a, a a great source of information about the capabilities of deer vision. It, it's it's huge. But you know, and and wind is so important. Uh, and some you mentioned the direction on on the place that you like to hunt, Mark. Um, yeah. The the key component to having close access to a deer is that they don't know you're there. If they know you're there, they're not going to be there. So they use this tremendous sight ability and this great hearing and great scent capability. Now they don't discriminate details well at all, but they detect movement extremely well across a, a wide, wide range. So they're going to see you if you move at all. And there's products out there that uh, promote, you know, uh, hiding your scent, camouflaging mm -hmm. your scent. Bottom line is if you are upwind to a deer that's crossing you downwind, they're going to smell you. Mm -hmm. The only key to successful proximity to a deer is you have the right wind. Now, there's the speed we've been talking about. The direction is critically important, but it's relative to where the deer are and where you are and and so you know i like personally to have a couple stands in, in on a site if i if i like a particular trail or a site i want stands on either two or maybe even three different sides so that i can hunt that site based on the wind not the fact that i just i just have this spot i like to hunt you know and, and since we're talking about wind it, it was going to ask you this later but it's just perfect to bring this up now we know that if you're hunting wind direction is essential um in your studies that you've done have you noticed major pattern shifts in how deer travel or don't travel in certain wind directions um does that have an influence at all and take the humans out do they change how they travel um based on the winds and other factors even if humans aren't on the landscape great question mark we're actually uh trying to do that particular analysis this year that's that's one of our projects that we're working on analyzing some of our past data looking for that effect because uh some cool work years a uh, couple of years ago by the university of georgia uh mm -hmm. documented some wind direction impacts on movement uh direction and uh, we want to test that 
with it with our data the reason well, for that, Mark, is because deer are so good at using the terrain to their advantage. I mean, you know, they are yeah. master survivalists. So there are certain terrain features that put the odds in the deer's favor more under certain wind conditions. So, uh, you know, even if they're not being hunted there, there are certain places, you know, that it just makes more sense for them to be or to avoid, you know, whether the wind's coming from the north, south, uh, et cetera. And Fortunately, today, hunters are more knowledgeable than ever before, you know, in understanding, first of all, the importance of using the wind to your advantage, certain stands to not hunt under certain wind conditions because you just can't, you know, be in a favorable spot. So um, I think it's pretty cool how deer do navigate like that. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting from a, just a whitetail enthusiast end. And then obviously from a hunter end, it's crucial to understand types of things like that to just continue to put yourself, you know, in good positions during hunting season. Totally agree on that. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, uh, as we talk about this topic and we were talking about uh, earlier, the the winds when they reach an abnormal speed for your area, Kip, you know, when they get pretty high, you know, we were talking about 15 miles an hour or higher. Um, it made me think one of the other factors, people like to hunt on a, an approaching front or uh, just after a rain or snow has come through. And a lot has to do with either a change in temperature, a cold front or something like that. And so um, I know we're talking about that you have to look at all the variables and factors, but uh, um, a lot of guys think they see more deer say after a front's gone through or uh, when a cold front approaches, but can that have a, the opposite effect? Can, can the temperature shift so much that the deer just shut down. Say, I'll make this number up, and you guys can talk as we go along. But like, what if the temperature swings forty degrees, and, and it happened? It's happened here in Pennsylvania. Is there something where it has an adverse effect, and you could sit in the woods and you simply won't see a deer? Oh yeah, and Steve's uh, former stomping ground, New England, is a great example. As you get closer to the northern limit of whitetail uh, range, um, I've been with QDMA and NDA just over twenty years now. Mark, prior to that, I was a state of New Hampshire's deer and bear biologist. New Hampshire, you know, northern New Hampshire, northern limit of whitetail range. A lot of deer in those environments during the winter, uh, you know, when the conditions are too bad, they just simply compensate, you know, by, by not moving much. You know, change behavior, you know, to conserve all of the, the fat reserve and slow the use of that. So in the northern limits, absolutely, you can get such a big switch that those deer just aren't going to move as much. Um, most of whitetail range, though. Um, even a 40 degree switch like Pennsylvania or elsewhere, that's not really shutting them down for very long. Certainly can shut them down for a short period of time, maybe while that storm passes. But, uh, you know, it's not a deal breaker for them in many cases, at least not for an extended period of time. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, Steve, the other thing I want to, as we're talking here, I wanted to ask you, you did a study with a, a group of students a few years ago, if I'm, if I'm correct, where you um, GPS collared a number of bucks and you were tracking their movement. And I think what you found is you had um, sort of two large groups, two different categories. You know, we were talking all about hyperlocal conditions here, but this is a little different. Their home ranges. And you found there was a group that stayed in or near their home range for the vast majority of the year. And you had another group that actually had like two distinctly different home ranges. And I think mm -hmm. you're talking in Mississippi, which is amazing to me because you don't have uh, huge variation in food sources or extreme winter conditions and things like that. But the other group would actually sort of establish a second home range or travel pretty far. Tell us a little bit about that and what you learned in that study. Yeah, we've, we're calling it personalities and a sedentary type personality versus a, a mobile personality. And the sedentary personality on, on this particular study, we had about 
50 different adult bucks collared. And the uh, sedentary personality lived in a single home range. Now that home range was close to a thousand acres. So it wasn't like they were staying in one little spot and they were making exploratory sallies, the excursions that we like to talk about periodically, they'll, they'll leave for a day or two or three and travel five or six miles away and then come back. That's not normally considered part of their home range. It's just, you know, going out and, and checking things out and coming back short, short, short time period. But they make those. And that's about two thirds of the, of the buck population in, that we've studied in Mississippi. Uh, and then the other category is the, the mobile or, or literally migratory where they live in two different home ranges. And, uh, the average distance between those home ranges is maybe uh, around two to three miles, but we've had extreme cases as far as uh, 13 miles where a single buck moved back and forth two different times over two years, lived the hunting season 13 miles away from where he lived his uh, spring and summer. He'd leave in March. Uh, hit from the hunting area where he, I, I get, maybe they weren't as good a hunter. So he, he knew to go there and be safe. Uh, after the hunt season, he'd come back literally the, the same week in March, both years, he'd come back to where he spent his spring and summer. And then in August, he'd move back to the other place. And we had uh, probably the superstar of that personality is, is a buck. Uh, just a couple of years ago, we call her down north of Vicksburg along the Mississippi river. And he moved across the Mississippi River, eight, uh, I think it was 18 miles to a property in Louisiana. He would leave, um, I believe it was in February, he would leave, but he'd come back in, in Missis to Mississippi in August. Did that same thing two years in a row, same property he went to. Now, was he born in Louisiana and learned to come to Mississippi or born in Mississippi and learned to go to Louisiana? I'd love to know that, but uh, we don't. Um, but he was finally, uh, harvested this year and, and the young man that harvested him was so excited because he'd heard a lot about this, this buck, buck 140 was his air tag. Um, so those are the kind of the superstars, those huge differences. And those are kind of the differences that, you know, Kip could tell us uh, a lot about when he was up in the Northern extent of the range, these migratory winter movements and, um, <clears throat> where they, they have to go to these dense conifers and, and spend the winter to try to protect themselves from the extreme uh, temperatures and the rain, I mean, the snow accumulation, and that they'll move uh, huge distances to avoid winter extremes. And that's found in the Western United States, mule deer, elk make movements. You know, so this pattern of protecting themselves from the winter extremes, you see a lot in the North. We haven't seen a lot of this documented in the South, but I really I'm looking forward to doing a, a meta analysis uh, in the next year or two with other universities, the Penn State and University of Georgia and, and, and Auburn. We've all been doing these collections of deer observations with GPS collars. I'm curious to see if it's a pattern that's discernible in other states as well. Um, clearly in, in Mississippi, we found it not just in one place couple of areas in Mississippi, actually three different areas we've had deer collared, they've made significant movements seasonally. Um, and it's not always as distinct as the two that I, I talked about, which, which kind of like our mobile bucks on steroids, they go 
a great distance and stay and then come back. We also have bucks that are, are more shifters. They'll go between their two home ranges a half a dozen different times during the year. So we haven't, I mean, one of the amazing things about whitetails, we researchers, we come up with these general patterns like crepuscular pattern of activity. Well, that's just a general pattern. There's always going to be ex exceptions to that pattern, especially as Kip mentioned during the rut when, when the bucks are more active during the day chasing does. Um, so there's these general patterns, but deer are masters of variation. There's general patterns that are adaptive to their survival, but there's also a, a really important component to variation because if, if the population doesn't have variation, it won't survive long term. So I think and I'm rambling here, Mark. Tell me to shut up if I'm taking up too much time. Um, but but this mobile personality here in the, in the South, it isn't about extreme winter weather. And, and yes, we do have floods down here. Uh, and it, some of the movement might be tied to avoiding floods, the general timing of floods. Um, but it's not explained specifically that way either. And so I, I look at these major movements as a kind of a, uh, a deep time adaptation genetically within deer populations to know what's out there. There have to be risk takers to go out and learn what's someplace else so that uh, as conditions change, <clears throat> certain, <clears throat> excuse me, Certain individuals within the population can deal with that change and go somewhere else. If they don't know what's out there, then they don't know how to deal with something that's coming up. And so I, I just think there's a long-term benefit for risk takers. And if you look in our human population, the mm -hmm. risk takers, uh, there's been a lot of risk takers in business that have, or uh, research and development that have gone bust and haven't been successful. But then there's the, the, Elon Musk's of the world that make billions of dollars by taking risks. So uh, the rewards are great, but the risks are high to those movers. If you move more, you're going to be more susceptible to predation by hunters. Yeah, How many bucks have, you, have, has, have your listeners harvested that they say, I've never seen this buck. He just showed up. Well, probably that buck that just showed up is one of these mobile personalities that's taken a risk, or maybe he's out on an excursion from a sedentary personality, but he's taken a risk by moving. And, but there's benefit, there has to be benefit or they wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and talking about, about hunters and deer movement and things like that, Kip, you live in Pennsylvania here, just like I do. And I had to ask this. Um, I know that hunting pressure will shift deer movement. At least it'll make it maybe shrink the range or they'll move at different times. So in living where I live and we have a two week gun season where there's a lot of guys that go in the woods. It's to me, what I've observed, and this is my own eight acres, all the deer start to show up between 1030 and one in the afternoon during the gun season. And I don't see them move right after first light and right before dark. Am I nuts or, or have you seen anything like that in any of your studies and observations? And I could almost guarantee you whether I'm sitting there and see them personally or on my trail cameras, they're all start moving in that late morning to midday time frame. And there's not enough hunters where I live that you can have guys sitting all season all day long, like you would have say if you're hunting a public forest or a state game land or something like that. 
Yeah. Pennsylvania is a good, a good example for this, Mark. Um, Pennsylvania has a higher density of deer hunters than any state uh-huh. in the country. About, about 14 and a half deer hunters per square mile. That's a lot. That is a yeah. lot. So a lot of what we see here, particularly during our firearm season, is not as much a function of how deer normally move is as it's more a function of how they are reacting to us being in the woods. So what you're seeing there, um, you know, certainly that's not a crepuscular movement pattern. So that probably is more related to what's going on in that area where those deer are. Now, you say you have eight acres there. Deer cover a lot more than eight acres on a daily basis. Yeah. So, you know, you're some of what you're seeing as a result of what's going on on your neighbor's property and, you know, where those deer are being bumped or feeling pressured. Or maybe you just have the best cover in the area so they know to get there after feeding in the morning. The the answer there is, you know, that's what you are personally seeing as a reflection of the local conditions and pressure being applied to those deer. Um, and as hunters, we need to remember that what you see can be entirely different than what I see, you know, a few counties away, or even if I'm a few properties away from you. As hunters, we like to couch everything in and what we see is what all the hunters are seeing. And the reality is that's that's not true at all. We're seeing something very specific to our area. So from your perspective, if that is what you're identifying, you know, and as a, an astute hunter, you should pay attention to that. I mean, that is awesome because that allows you to develop a strategy to put yourself in position to be successful. That might be very different from your neighbor who has, you know, good food, but no cover where deer are out of there right after daylight. So um, I think it's nice for hunters. More information is available today. Learn all you can about the generalities. But then at the same time, hey, let's let's learn to be a good woodsman as well and be able to read the current conditions so that we can help ourselves, you know, get closer to deer. Kudos to you for recognizing that and using that to your advantage. You know, as hunters, more of us need to do that. Yeah. And, and I appreciate appreciate all of that information, and and you know just to to continue on for one second, I I agree with you. I I realize after living out of the first couple of years, uh, the edge I have some really thick uh, habitat where you even if you're sitting in the wood, you can't see more than twenty yards. And I often thought that was the case, and then they would lay, believe it or not, right on the edge. Not only do they have the food and the browse, if they need to escape, they got a quick escape, an easy downhill escape. So it, it, it is interesting. And, and, and again, you sort of see a theme going throughout our conversation here that um, it really depends on everybody's individual situation, where they're hunting, how much pressure the deer face, uh, what the conditions are like and things like that. And so, you know, we've talked a lot, but I want to hear from each of you on, on, on a couple of things before we wrap this up. The first is- Mark, Mark can, um, I, can I- can I please go ahead? To another topic. I, I want to expand on on Kip's answer and uh, your question. Um, we did an analysis of movements, and we had a on this one out project. We had about fifty to sixty thousand acres over which deer uh-huh. were moving, and we had all the landowners and the hunters on the across that acreage recording every day that they hunted, when and where they hunted. So we did this analysis, and <clears throat> you know we like to think that we're patterning deer. Well, deer are also patterning us. (laughs) And one of the analyses we did was look at habitat selection. And we looked at where the deer were at different times of the day and where the hunters were at different times of the day. And you know what? The deer were not where the hunters were. The, The deer were avoiding where the hunters were when the hunters were there. They went where the hunters were when the hunters weren't there. 
and hunters where, where do you you know in the south at least you know a lot of hunters have food plots and they have a box blind on a food plot and they go and sit there and they think well the deer are going to show up well the deer that show up generally are the ones that aren't shot at which are the ones you don't you're not necessarily looking for it's great to see any deer but uh, you know if you're targeting certain types of deer the places you regularly go to are not necessarily the places those deer are going to sh show up they've figured you out we also did a, a day by day home range analysis of uh, each individual buck and looked at their selection within a given day. They tended to not be near stands, permanent stands. Yeah. They were avoiding permanent stands. So, deer pattern us. So, if you want to be more successful, don't pattern, don't let the deer pattern you. Don't go to the same place every weekend and, and every day after day. And Uncle Ernie hunted that spot, and uh, I'm going to keep hunting it because he killed a deer that was nice. And uh, yeah. be different. Outthink them if I, you can. I, could, I couldn't agree more. And that's why you're starting to see more and more people are starting. But if you're bow hunter, hunting out of a saddle or a hang and hunt stands. You want to move around. Everybody knows to have a couple different stands if you can, if you have larger properties, especially. You hunt more than a couple of times out of a given stand. You can't help it. Even if you're as scent and wind conscious as possible, you're leaving bits and pieces of yourself and your environment in the woods. Sooner or later, those deers are going to learn to avoid the stand. And, and so thank you so much for, for, for backing this up and, and pointing that out, because that is crucial. There, there is you, you can't hunt the same one or two stands the whole season. Yeah. Now, if you get one the first or second time, great for you but if your season's going on and you're looking for a specific buck it gets harder and harder every time you put your scent in the wood and the other thing i, I think it's worth pointing out is we're talking about all these variables and all these factors um if you can i suggest either whether you do it in some kind of on your phone digitally or even on the notepad keep a log of everything all the conditions weather conditions temperatures deer sightings um you know wind and things like that it, it, get, it can really help paint a picture and if you start to see a pattern from those notes you make every year you should really look back and try to plan your hunts on that i mean that's we don't talk about that enough but i know i do it i know guys that are incredibly successful keeping a log like that and they've been able to really fine-tune their approach year in and year out um you know, so I wanted to ask you guys, you have a couple of things here before we wrap up and, and thank you so much. You've been a wealth of information. Um, the first question I have, and I'd like both of you to answer is what is the biggest misconception you think hunters have, or you've heard hunters talk about as far as deer movement? Is there something that jumps out to you that you've heard from hunters regarding deer movement and hunting? Kip, you want to go first? Sure. I, I have a few here I could throw into this because I think there's a lot of misconceptions, Mark. I think one of the biggest though, and this is especially true because I live in the north, but I know hunters all the way to Florida that routinely say this is that a cold front gets deer on their feet. And the round of it is all the research clearly shows that is not true. Cold fronts get hunters on their feet and they get us in the woods. And because of that, in many cases, we see more deer. Um, but the data does not support that statement north or the south. So, uh, I'm not saying don't hunt when a cold front's coming. I'm one of the first to be in the woods when a cold front is coming. But that weather change or that storm alone um, is not putting deer on their feet more than, than they were before that, or at least not from any of the GPS studies with us. So I think that's a big conception. And, and not saying don't go hunting, just saying just because the cold front's not there, don't let that keep you from the woods. 
go then if you have the ability as well. So I think that's a huge misconception. My One of my favorites, Mark, is uh, the idea that uh, that temperature is going to drive breeding activity. And, you know, hunters say, well, yeah, it, it's cold now and, and the bucks are really rotten. They're going to be breeding. No, they're not. They're going to be more active. A doe is going to breed based on a, a huge amount of physiological processing that makes her susceptible to be bred for, you know, maybe 36 or 48 hours. And temperature doesn't make her all of a sudden be susceptible to breeding. A buck breeds when he finds a receptive doe. A receptive doe exists because of not what the temperature is today or last week, but what her physiology dictates based on the previous months of uh, physiology, nutrition, and behavior. Uh, a population's breeding date doesn't change from year to year. The population, the local population is going to breed, you know, 60% of the breeding is going to take place within a, a 10 or 12, 14 day period every year with a, a peak centered around a couple of days. That doesn't change. So I, that's a misconception that a lot of hunters and I've, I've enjoyed helping them understand reality over the years at workshops that they just, well, yeah, I've seen the breeding behavior change. No, you haven't seen the breeding change. You just seen some buck activity pick up because it got colder. And again, as Kip was saying, maybe, maybe because it got cold, you went in the woods and you saw something that you wouldn't have seen if you hadn't, hadn't been cold. One of the things, you know, the reasons we can't come up with this magic day stuff, Mark, is the inability to control all these multiple factors Chip Kip was talking about. Yeah. On any given day, you've got a front with a certain pattern, but that isn't dependent on a particular moon or time of day. The front comes when the front comes, and it's a type of activity, and, and it's relative to early or, or pre-rut, early rut, rut post-rut there's all these different things happening all these moving parts and to be able to figure out what is the key thing that's driving it uh, again as, as kip was saying earlier it's so complex so many moving parts you can't we can't uh at yet figure out what it what it is that drives magic day yeah and, it, and it's funny you said that and um this year, uh, I feel like in the in Kip, you can certainly jump in here. I feel like the past few years, I'd say the past three, four years, we get a warm spell in Pennsylvania in beginning of November where temperatures get into 60 degrees or almost 70. It seems to change the deer activity. We know the breeding period is still taking place. Our prime breeding time up here is by early to mid-November. And I was hunting like the worst possible day this year when I got my buck. It was already 60 some degrees, which is warm for November up here. Uh, and by the time I got my deer on 845 in the morning, it was, it was like uh, 70 some degrees, which again is really warm up here. Well, that goes in the face of everything. You want to go in when you're hunting in, in November in Pennsylvania, you want it to be crisp, cold. You don't want it to be sticky, humid. You know, certainly don't expect that you're going to take a buck. And so for a couple of years, I thought, well... You know, it seems like the, the deer activity drops when it's it's warm and it, and it probably does to a certain degree. They're going to move more when it's cold. But then certainly I'm talking to all these people in that, that time frame when it got really warm and they're not seeing anything. And then I had the right buck show up at the right time. 
and it was 70 some degrees. So again, that goes to the hyper local conditions, being in the right spot in the right time, hedging all your best, planning well, and things like that. So um, just a, a, a fascinating topic that we could talk forever about. But I did have one other question. I'd like both of you to answer this one as well. You both have studied deer for so long, been involved in so many studies, done so much research. What's the one thing that surprised you about deer in all your years of research, something that maybe still stands out to you to this day where you were, shook your head and you're like, I can't believe this is what the data or this is what the results show. Kip, I'm gonna ask you to go first. You're shaking your head there. Okay. I think one of the things that still makes me shake my head is that the more that we learn about deer, whether it's movements, food habits, uh, or whatever, that deer are individuals, you know, as biologists or managers, we manage populations. Um, but as hunters, you know, we we hunt individual deer. And the more that we learn about deer behavior, deer movement, and all of that, the more we learn that, you know, every deer is an individual and they each have their own personalities. Some like to have big home ranges, some have very small. Some like to move a lot, some don't like to move much at all. You know, some are more social, some are, you know, kind of like to be by themselves. You know, I've seen deer that preferred beach. You know, and uh, there's most deer, you know, will eat beach as a last resort, you know, talking about the buds from an American beach tree. So um, that more than anything else still continues to amaze me, Mark, that just how each can be their individual. But at the same time, um, I'm smiling because I think that's one of the things that makes them so cool. So cool to manage, so cool to hunt, and uh, and so cool to admire. And Mark, I don't know if I could come up with a, a single cool thing, you know, Back in the day, uh, early 2000s, graduate student Randy DeYoung was here and he identified uh, for the first time multiple paternity where a, a set of twins were fathered by two different bucks. And, and we found that, that across the board, that's about 25% of populations we've studied in our pens as well as in free range conditions in Oklahoma, Texas, Mississippi. 25% of twins are fathered by other more than one buck. Uh, I mean, and then the personality stuff that we've, we've documented more recently, uh, you know, this buck swimming the Mississippi river. I mean, at Vicksburg, the Mississippi river is about a mile across. And, you know, the idea that he's swimming that to avoid flooding conditions. Well, I mean, he's getting a whole lot wetter swimming across that river than he would if he had stayed over, on, in the Delta of Mississippi, where it might get a little, little wet. So this ties into what Kip was saying. There's so many unique things about deer behavior that makes them so interesting and, and so exciting to research, but also to hunt. Uh, I, I like to say, never say never, never say always. You talk about general patterns, but there's so much individual variation. Uh, if you're not out in the woods, you're not going to see it. So uh, yeah, use, use the patterns as much as you can. If you only have two days to hunt, try to pick the best two days, but get out in the woods. The more you're out there, the more you're going to see, and the more you're going to experience and love and, 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 and learn and harvest. I agree. And, and, you know, I think to wrap this up, we've talked about a variety of different situations, environmental factors that can influence deer movement. Is there anything you guys want to bring up yet before we conclude this conversation, which to me has just been absolutely fascinating? I'll say I, I like it that hunters 
pay more attention to to what the knowledge or the information that's available today about deer, which which is very good. And uh, so I tell folks, you know, learn as much as you can and just spend as much time in the woods as you can, you know, and I think there's a lot of value to even giving up some hunting days to to scout more or to do some more observing. Um, it's amazing how much you can learn, you know, by watching from afar um, or, you know, just checking trails, et cetera. So um, tell people, even if things aren't going your way during the deer season, you aren't seeing the deer you want, or maybe you're running cameras and you're, they're not showing up. Hey, just still go hunting because, you know, you know, Mr. Big, who might be five miles away yesterday, can be under your stand today, even at noon on an 80 degree day in Pennsylvania, you know, in November. So, you know, there's so much variation with regard to sort of what they're doing on any given day that, hey, you know, don't don't ever start feeling bad for yourself because your season isn't going good. Every day you go deer hunting, you stand the chance of seeing something really, really cool, learning something that's going to help you in the future or Maybe it's the day Mr. Big uh, enters your county, your town, and uh, it goes right by your stand. And Mark, I might, I don't want to sound negative, but I'm, I'm going to make a, a, a little critical observation about hunters generally, mm -hmm. and less about bow hunters, more about gun hunters. Um, but hunters generally have gotten kind of lazy, and they, they want to show up when they have the time. Oh, I, I can hunt for an hour and a half this afternoon. They want to go up and they want go out and they want the deer to show up where they are, when they are. And, you know, us older guys, when, when we were hunt, started hunting, we had to figure out where the deer were going to be and find their trails, go out and scout, like Kip was saying, learn where the deer are and what they're doing. Don't rely on gimmicks to, or, or uh patterns you know convenience for you you got to work at it to be successful um i know some properties here in mississippi where you know there's a couple of guys that are really the deer nuts and they work really hard and they they get the best deer every year and it's like oh it's not fair the other hunters say, oh, it's not fair they always get the big deer well they work at it they're not lazy hunters so I don't want to sound critical about hunters, although I guess I am. I, I tend to be, a, I'm a scientist, so I got to look at critically at things. But if hunters invest more, they will get more. Yeah, and, and I totally agree with that. Even as you were talking there, uh, I think several years ago, Penn State did a study about like most deer hunters. And I think, again, it was during rifle season. And while we're the bow hunting podcast, there's some applicable things here. Most hunters didn't go very far off the road in the woods. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just fascinating, you know, as far as when you think about deer movement and pressure and things like that, the majority of hunters in Pennsylvania were staying really close to the road. And I have to tell you, in, in years of bow hunting, I've hunted some really oddball spots and you can have incredible success. I've hunted uh, strip woods between open cornfields. Uh, I've hunted huh, around a junkyard. Um, things that you wouldn't think of where you can be successful, where you can get deer, like you both have said in different ways, you have to put the time, the resources, um, trail cams are great. Getting out for an hour when you can is great, but you have to do your homework throughout the year. You have to be flexible, um, even change your tactics when, when the season's going on. If you're not having luck with what's traditionally worked for you, figure out what's going on, adapt. 
scouting season if you have to. I mean, it's just like you said, this isn't etched in stone. There's a lot of science that goes behind it, but this isn't black and white. This is really a gray area sport. It's You try to figure out as much as you can ahead of time and while you're doing it. Hopefully by the end of the year, it all works out in your favor. So uh, gentlemen, Steve and uh, Kip, thank you so much. And for everybody who's listening to the Bow Hunting Podcast, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.